0: Good morning, church. We haven't had a chance to meet yet. My name is Jake Stouffer, uh, and today we'll be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 23 through 27. Uh, that can be found on page 826 in your pew Bible. Again, that's Matthew, chapter 21, verses 23 through 27. It says this, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I, will also, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say, from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, let me pray for us one more time. Jesus, thank you for your word and for these particular words. Thanks for the way you want to speak to us this morning about who you are, what it means for us to respond to you and to your authority. Even using that word authority now, we just stop and ask for your help. We struggle. Uh, since our first parents in the garden, we have resisted your authority. Sometimes it's really subtle, sometimes it's socially acceptable, and sometimes it is evil. Sometimes it's violent. Sometimes it harms those around us in overt ways. So we ask for your help what we're struggling with inside of us needs your help. Jesus, you died in such a way to heal and to forgive and to redeem and transform what you call rebellion, what you call sin and brokenness, this challenge to your authority. So I wanna ask up front, God, that you would just help us, help us be honest, help us find hope in you, help us bring our hearts to you in ways that you see it and can heal it and can help it pray against resistance to this. I pray resist, uh, against resistance to the words you have for us in this space because I think it's an invitation to wholeness. It's an invitation to, to real healing. So, so help us not put up a guard for the tender places of our souls. Even as I'm praying this, some feel undone. Holy Spirit, would you meet them in compassionate ways? And for where our hearts are hard, would you come uh, lovingly and forcefully Um, to move our hearts, to break our hearts, to open up our eyes, to thaw out our cold and callous hearts. So so we need your help to do this. On our own, we won't choose you. So we ask, God, that you would work and move in such a way that we experience you. And there's lots of different needs. And so, God, would you come and help uh, in particular ways, my sisters and my brothers, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, well, it's a, a pretty intense passage just to jump into right away. If you've not been with us, we've been walking with Jesus through the gospel of Matthew for quite a while actually. If all goes well, we should end up sometime in July, I think, kind of landing the plane. A few weeks ago was Palm Sunday. We preached the beginning of Matthew 21 and then we had you read during the week those chapters. And no FOMO, if you didn't know about that, don't, don't worry about it. But I just want to kind of tell you where we've been. We read through these chapters because this is the Last week of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross. And then we came into Good Friday and we read the story of his betrayal and his trial and his crucifixion and the way his disciples abandoned him and him going all the way to the cross, dying in our place, being buried. And then on Easter Sunday, we went to Matthew 28 where we celebrated the resurrection. And then we spent one more week in that last weekend about his commission to us based on these events. And so now we're coming back in to slow down and just teach these teachings of the last week of Jesus' life and so you can imagine like anybody's last few words when they know they're about to to die they know they're about to leave they they take those words real serious and so what we'll see in these words is Jesus loving us with a whole lot of clarity he's loving us to push into places where we need to hear his voice there's a couple of themes that we'll see one is about his authority there's times throughout the gospel of Matthew and it's kind of mysterious where he seems almost hide who he is a little bit He tells people, don't don't go share that just quite yet. And what you get the sense is, is the full disclosure of who he is and yet on display. And so he's telling people not to misunderstand who he is. But there's been kind of a, a secretiveness to some of what he's taught. And now he's getting ready to say, go and tell everyone. So he talks about his authority and he wants to talk about what's going on inside of us. What's going on and kind of our resistance to that, which leads to like his mission, like why he actually came to come and die, to redeem, to to rescue. So so really a lot about his authority and a lot about his mission. And we're going to cover some pretty big chunks at one time. Not just because I'm eager to get out of the Gospel of Matthew. It's been a rich journey. I don't want to diminish this or like rush it here at the end. but, But actually Jesus is teaching in large chunks. It's appropriate to take each little story and unpack them. There's enough there. You could do that for a long time. But there's something beautiful to see kind of a larger dialogue going on. Jesus will drive home some points multiple ways in the next couple of sections. So this morning, we're actually going to go all the way through chapter 22, verse 14. Jesus is going to give some parables to answer the questions that the religious leaders ask him and so we'll see a lot in this section next week will be real similar there's several questions that get asked but they're all really the same question and then we'll cover all of chapter 23 in one sermon which is kind of this indictment to the religious leaders I say all that just to kind of buckle in a little bit like it'll be okay we're going to leave some things on the table but to see the large landscape isn't to miss the trees it's actually to take all of them in so I want you just to kind of take in the words of Jesus because I think when you take them the way he said them, the impact of them hits your heart. Because something about our souls that wants to dissect and analyze and even get on top of the word as if our understanding was the most important thing. But when Jesus speaks a large section like this that has a warning in it, it's something that goes over us and us underneath it. And to feel the weight of his words actually puts us in the right place to understand what he actually is saying. And lets us actually respond. Not as these religious leaders who are, are questioning him and picking him apart, but as those who realize they have a need. So I want the kind of weight of what he says to to sit on us. And I think the best way to do it is just to kind of take the way he talked about it in these sections, which is kind of kind of long. One last thing with that. These are hard words. They're they're challenging words. There's a lot of conflict in these chapters. So I want to do two things. One, I want to just Brace you. The next couple of weeks you may not end the service going like, man, I feel really cozy and really warm inside and really fuzzy. That may that may happen in a sense of like repentance that brings freedom, but you'll feel the weight because God is a God of love and mercy and grace, but He's also a holy God, a just God, and He's warning of the judgment that's to come if we were to reject Him. And so it's just not something we're used to hearing. Even in our church where we try to preach the Bible really faithfully, sometimes we don't hear enough or rightly or weighty enough the words of of judgment. So it might feel kind of dissonant to you. I want to just say that because I want to invite you to let that happen. I want to invite you into the conflict. I want to invite you into the hard questions and, and be honest about the conflict and questions in your own heart because being honest about those conflict and questions will then open you up to receive the good news. To the degree that you let yourself kind of ask these hard questions honestly, I think you put yourself in a position to openly and beautifully receive Jesus' solution or his his resolution to the conflict. So so hang in there. If you're brand new to Christianity, God is a God of love. The person invited you, they, they were speaking the truth. God does love you. And part of loving you is speaking the truth to you. Telling you where things are really at. What it's actually like. And it would be very unloving to say to people that were in danger that they're not actually in danger. So, so receive these words even though they feel maybe harsh as comforting words. Which I know um, I'm smiling because I just feel like opposites. But I think you'll see quickly how they, how they come together. So the authority of Jesus and, and the mission of Jesus. And let me just maybe name one more challenge that we'll feel in our cultural moment Any talk of authority um, is so offensive. We're we're just suspicious of it altogether. To think about somebody having authority over us, whether it's a relationship, even like a parent or or even a boss or a government or a church or a pastor, even God himself, to think about someone having authority over us, something wells up inside of us just to resist. It's part of our our human fallen nature. I just want to own that, And the cultural moment we're in, there have been so many abuses to authority. For right reasons, you have your guard up a little bit. So I would just maybe say in that space, the one who's speaking about his authority, remember, is the one who was willing to die in your place to sacrifice his very life for you. So whatever you think about him, whatever you think about his worthiness, whatever you think about his holiness, whatever you think about his lordship, know that he was willing to go all the way to sacrifice. The one who's speaking of his authority Show that he loved you by dying in your place. Hold on to that. And because of this deal with authority, we always want to put ourselves in kind of the winner's seat or the white hat seat or, or the, the good person's seat. Religious, non-religious, we see our own little worldview and the way we understand reality to be the kind of the center place. It's the middle row that makes sense of all of the extremes. Even if you're on the far extreme, you still somehow put yourself in some sort of middle. We, we find ourselves actually resistant to the idea that we need correction. And I just want to open up your mind to the idea that there's a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. Even if you have nothing to do with God, you don't even know what the word Pharisee is. What I mean by that is there's a little bit of self-righteousness. There's a little bit of judgmentalism. Even those who are the most tolerant find some things intolerant. There's a little bit of this Pharisee inside of us. And so, so to engage our cultural moment, to be aware of our struggle with authority, and then to just kind of own the fact that, hey, there may be something here for me that I'll be surprised if, if I uh, miss it. I'll be, I'll be sad if I miss it. I may be surprised it's actually for me. These are the ways I want to kind of open up our time. Because what Jesus is going to be asked about is about his authority. And it will open up kind of two things for us. One is the actual answer to the question. They ask in this text, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus will actually answer that in these parables. So that's one part of the themes we want to walk through. The other one is, what it exposes about the way they ask that question or, or why they ask that question, the, the indignation that happens in the way that they, they pose that, the rebellion that's in their heart, that will also be a theme that gets exposed in the way that he answers this. So let's just jump into the text here. Chapter 21 of the book of Matthew. We'll start in verse 23. There's four sections that we'll actually read all of them, but let's just start with this first one. This is what you just heard a moment ago from Jake. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? So the the, these things is what he's been teaching kind of all along. But in a particular way, it's what happened the day before as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and is met with the people praising him with hosannas. And he didn't quiet them. He didn't tell them to stop. So he actually received praise that belongs to God, which stirred the religious leaders in a a mad way. And then he goes into the temple and he begins to flip over tables and says, the way we're doing this has gotten so off, so skewed. This is meant to be a house of prayer, but you're making it a place of taking advantage of people. So so they say these things. What what are the these things? It's you coming into Jerusalem and you coming into the temple and, and challenging the status quo, challenging the way we live our life, challenging what we've understood to be the way that we relate to God. By what authority are you doing these things? Now you know there are a couple of ways to ask questions. You can ask this question with a genuine desire to understand. I would love to understand Who gave you this authority? Because I want to respond to what you're doing. That's one way to ask it. But you also know there's another way that has more of an accusation in it. It has more of a how dare you. Of course, course you don't have the authority. This is more of a who do you think you are kind of question, which doesn't actually ask for an answer. It's more of a statement. So to say to Jesus, by what authority are you doing this? Who gave you this authority is to say you don't have the authority. Who do you think you are? And when it comes to questions, God has all kinds of room for that first idea here of, I don't understand. I would love to know who you are and how you do these things and what it means for my life. He has all kinds of patience and welcome. Your genuine questions about faith and about God and about the Bible, about how to make sense of the world around us, God has all kinds of patience for. But when the question comes as an accusation, He wants to expose it for for what it actually is. So, So when you're suffering and you say, why would God allow this to happen? When that is a, God, I want to understand what you're doing in my world so I can respond to it. I know you're loving, this is really difficult. Why are you allowing this? He wants to meet you there in beautiful ways. But when you ask it saying, you should not do this. This is not okay for you. This is not what a God is supposed to do to his people. When you ask that very same question, you expose now your struggle with his authority. And it's probably in suffering that you have the most um, obvious or loud struggle with his authority. When his authority being expressed in your life has jagged edges and questions and pain to it. It's okay when he's blessing you and you got the job. You're you're happy to praise him for that. But when things go wrong, when things get hard, when things have shadows and darkness and jagged edges, and those spaces, we're really quick to say, God, you shouldn't do this. It's not fair. How, how dare you? Again, that how has a question part to it, but it's not a question. It's, a, it's an accusation. That's where these people are. Remember at the beginning, I said, would you just let yourself ask the questions honestly, even as I'm going through this? Would you just examine your own soul? Where are the places where when it comes to how you think about Jesus, you've said, how dare you? Or, or, or why would you let this happen? That's crazy. Where, where in the things in your story have you questioned Jesus's authority? Hold on to that because that's relevant to the rest of the text. So, so they ask these questions and Jesus answers them in a classic rabbi sort of way with another question. Well, I'll also ask you one question and if you tell me the answer, then I'll answer Your question, by what authority I do these things. Now here's the question, the baptism of John. Remember back in Matthew chapter 3, John is the cousin of Jesus. He's the first one to come and pronounce the gospel of repentance and welcome people to get ready for the Messiah. Back in chapter 3, this Baptist of John, where did he come from? Was it from heaven or from man? And so he's set in front of them now a choice. There's a fork in the road. And they discuss it for themselves. They realize what's happening. They realize Jesus is turning the question on them. They say, well, if we say from heaven, then he's going to say to us, then why didn't you believe him? Because in that moment, in that baptism, remember the clouds open up and a voice from heaven comes down and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And John the Baptist later will testify and say, this is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. So if you believe that John's baptism is from heaven, then you've already heard and understood where the authority of Jesus comes from. Because in that moment, this real moment, you see the validation and the explanation of his authority. So that's one option. They say, man, if we do that, he's got us. If we admit to that, if we say yes to that, then we've got to now agree to everything else that John taught about Jesus. And we're just simply unwilling to do that. We won't follow the logic of the question because our bias make us resistant to where it might take us. So, so we can't do that. What if we say from man we're afraid of the crowd because they hold John to be a prophet. So if we say, man, he's just a guy, there'll be a riot on our hands because the people who are hearing this and listening to this and who are saying Hosanna who watched him come into the temple, they actually believe that John was a prophet, that what he spoke was true. Their lives would bear that out. They, they've been actually living these lives of repentance, accepting the Messiah. So to say he was just a man would cause a riot. So, so they send back to Jesus, verse 27, we don't know. Passively engaging in this conflict that they started just to say, hey, we don't want to play the game. We don't know. We won't follow the logic of the question. So Jesus says, well, then I'm not going to tell you either. And then for the next like, number of verses, he tells them. So see in this space here, the mercy of God, even though we're resistant, he is persistent towards us. You know, as I'm talking about this resistance to authority, if you're going like, man, that marks my life. What does that mean? Now, is God mad at me? Is he distant from me? Hear even this warning as an invitation. This is a tense scene of conflict. They're they're challenging him after a day of conflict the day before, and Jesus still moves towards them in mercy. So so you have these questions on the table. As we walk through these three parables, we'll see three things, three responses to Jesus' authority. One is indifference. Another one is insurrection. And, and another one is, is a rank, overt independence. There's indifference is one of your options to Jesus' authority, just dismissing it passively. There's insurrection to fight it, to actively resist it, not just passive, but to be aggressive. And there's this way of coming to Jesus independently on your own terms. They ask, where does your authority come from? He's going to ask, what are you doing with my Authority. How are you responding to the one whom you know has this authority? So, so let's look in this next parable. There's going to be three of them that we'll walk through. Verse 28, these are the illustrations. Verse 28 of chapter 21, it's called the parable of the two sons. Jesus says, what, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. No way, Dad. The game's on, I'm playing video games, I got homework, I got whatever, I got my headphones on. I'm not, I'm not doing, I won't go. But afterward, he changed his mind, which think about repentance, and he went. He said no, and then he says, yes. He goes to the other son and said the same thing, and he answered, "I will go, sir." But then he didn't go. Up front says the right thing, presents really well, verbally agrees. But his heart is never actually intending to go, and he doesn't go. So Jesus asks a question, which of the two did the will of the Father? Easy. He's starting them off easy with some simple questions, some softball pitches, and they say, well, obviously the first one. And neither one of these are super clean, right? It's not like one was always perfect and one was always bad. There's good and bad mixed together, like both of our, or like all of our life had those, those mixtures there. But he says, or they respond, the first one. So then Jesus says this, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. John came telling you who I was and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes who'd been saying no to God with their lives, though you verbally have been saying yes to God as religious leaders, they actually believed him. And even when you saw it, you didn't afterward change your mind and... Believe him. This first little parable aims at the question of what are we doing with Jesus' authority to give this category of indifference, to see it and just simply dismiss it. And this is the religious kind of trap, the religious uh, fault, the religious Achilles heel, to say, say of yourself, I'm doing pretty well on my own, I've been following all the rules and I can verbally say the right thing. I can even repeat back to you what is the right answer, but my heart stays far. What we see in this text is the one who actually obeys the Father is the one who does what the Father asks, not the one who simply says yes. So think about these religious leaders who are trained in the law, have memorized large portions of the Old Testament, all pointing towards Jesus and the Messiah. And Jesus has fulfilled so many of these Promises and prophecies. Matthew goes out of his way over and over again to say this fulfills this prophecy and this fulfills this prophecy. Even in that last week, you'll see these kind of evidences of the Old Testament pointing to the things they've believed, but now they refuse to actively actively act on. So, so one response to Jesus' authority is simply indifference—to just say, "I don't, I don't really care. It doesn't really matter. I won't actually do anything." With it To minimize the God of the universe. Now, now when it comes to parables, a couple of things are helpful to keep in mind. They're, they're more like poetry than they are just straightforward prose or text. They're, they're meant to be provocative. And you have to pay attention to two things. One is the question that prompts the parable, because they're kind of confusing sometimes. And then there's normally like a punchline to the parable, like a surprise twist. So, so a person will ask a question, and it seems like Jesus is actually dodging it, but instead he's taking it deeper into their hearts through, through these kinds of stories. And what he's doing in this moment with these religious leaders is pulling them into their own like complicit rebellion. He's pulling them in, not just to their heads, but he's helping them feel what it would be like to have a son, say they're going to do what they're supposed to do, and then not do it. The punchline is actually going to come in, Chapter 22, verses 11 to 14. That's where he will make his point abundantly clear. But remember, the question is about authority. But by whose authority do you do this? And so he's saying by, by the Father's authority. And if you'd believed in John, you would have known that. And those who actually, though their lives have been marked with struggle and tragedy and rebellion, when they hear the good news and respond, they're the ones who are coming into the kingdom. Which would be so offensive to these religious leaders okay so the first option is indifferent second is insurrection which is the next parable the parable of the tenants you see there if you're in the text this is verse 33 of chapter 21 he says here another parable he's driving this home he's building a case now he's helping answer the question who are you where do you get off doing what you've done that's the question he's aimed at and he wants to expose what's inside their heart he says, here's another story. When there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, and this is fascinating, this detail is quoting from Isaiah chapter 5. He put a fence around it, he planted a vineyard, he dug a wine press and put a tower. This is the way God describes the way he set up his nation of Israel. And in Isaiah 5, what you see is though he had done all this work, they were a fruitless people like the fig tree, remember that Jesus curses because it looks vibrant and healthy but doesn't actually have fruit, have that theme in your mind, they would know exactly what he's talking about. Isaiah 5 is an indictment to God's people. And he set up this, he set up this vineyard. He puts this wine press. He digs this thing around there. there. There's a tower there to protect it. And they simply don't engage. So, so he leases this farm to these tenants and he goes away to another country. Verse 34, When, when the season of fruit drew near he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and they beat one. Okay, so this is like a crazy story. He's just asking like a farm. It's like a, a, an agrarian illustration. There's farmers, you got overalls on. There's like, there's like plants in the field. Now we have a beating. And then it says they killed another. And then he stoned another. So here's the owner of the land, leases out this land to tenants who are supposed to take care of it. Speaking of the religious leaders. And God sends his servants speaking of the prophets. And rather than receiving what God has done, receiving what they have agreed to, receiving what their faith is right, because tenants start working the land with a certain agreement with the landowner. They had agreed to give a portion of their crops to the owner. But instead of actually following through on their agreement, they they begin to beat and stone and kill the servants. This is speaking of the Old Testament prophets. Verse 36, again, they send other servants more than the first, they kept, kept mercifully sending messengers to them and they did the same thing to them. Remember, he's asking about authority. So in this moment, here you have this tenant who has no authority, exercising incredible authority over the actual land owner. Right? Pretending faux authority to actually beat down the servants of the master. Finally, in verse 37, he sent his son to them, who is Jesus, but the son of God, He's been proving that over and over again. They actually know who He is and who He claims to be. They send the Son, and when the tenants saw the Son, they recognized the Son, they know who the Son is. They they know who this one is. They say to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and then we can have his inheritance. If we take the Son out, that we don't have to deal with him. All of this can be ours. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard And they killed him, prophetically talking about what will happen in just a few days on the cross with Jesus. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, here's the question. What's he going to do with these tenants? Okay, these parables are provocative. They're like poetry. They're meant to get to our hearts. So these guys are hearing this story, and they're outraged. Like, how dare they? They shouldn't do that, especially because of this idea of Israel being the vineyard. and the reference from Isaiah chapter 5, They know what he's saying in that space. They're caught up in the story. So they say, he will put these wretches out to a miserable death. And he will let that vineyard out to other tenants who will give them the fruits of their season. What do they deserve? They deserve death, the religious leaders say. And in that space now, their hearts are hooked into the story. It's the same way in the Old Testament where we see David commits adultery and then murder. And Nathan the prophet comes and tells him a story. About a wealthy landowner that had a ton of sheep, but he wanted this one sheep, the only sheep of this poor farmer. And so he kills that sheep to take and make a party for his own group. And in that space, David is outraged. Go find that guy, kill that guy, that's wrong. And Nathan says, Hey, that's you, that's what you've done. In that same space, Jesus has spring loaded for these men who first come arrogantly, saying, How dare you? What right do you have to do these things? Where do you get off? Who do you think you are in those spaces now? He's hooked them into the spot. They've just said people that treat the king like that and treat the king's son like that, they deserve death. They deserve to have everything taken away from them and given to somebody else. And Jesus says to them, have you never read what the scriptures say? That the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and its marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people, producing its fruit. Again, action, not just verbally, those who actually produce fruit, the fruit in keeping with repentance, which is what's going on in John the Baptist when the, the first uh, Pharisees come and they have this faux response. They, they feign this repentance and John the Baptist looks at them and calls them broods of vipers, says, your snakes, your evil, go and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't just give words of repentance to follow some religious ritual. Go live lives marked by that. So when he says he's looking for people that are going to produce fruit, he has that in his mind. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable. They perceived that he was speaking about them. So no more hiding, no, no more veil here. They, they get it. And although they were seeking to arrest him, again, their fear gets in the way, the fear of man of the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Not, not the religious leaders, but they knew the people had seen his works. They had watched him. The prostitutes and the tax collectors had seen what Jesus had done, had heard him teach and said, yes, I want to follow you. You, you are the Messiah. Hosanna, son of David, come and save us. But those who had something to protect, those who had built a system of self-righteousness, those who stood above the law in their own minds, actually now resisted the very one who was going to rescue and save them. Hey, there's a ton in this little quote of Psalm 118. The reason why we're doing this reading guide is to give you some like, background in the Old Testament. If you were to follow that, there's some on the back desk out there. You'll see like references to the Old Testament or New Testament that further explain some of these themes, but but in this space, I simply want you to see this. Jesus is saying there is a a foundation and the builders, the founders, the religious leaders, they've rejected it. They've thrown it out. They've discarded it. But the kingdom of God is still advancing and God is, is moving in ways regardless of what the religious leaders say. They don't have the authority to stop it. And in fact, in their resistance, now the option is to have this stone, verse 44, fall on them. And to break them into pieces and actually crush them. The question is about Jesus' authority. Indifference is the first parable, insurrection is this parable. It's an active, violent resistance to the words of God, the will of God, the demands of God on your life. And what he's saying is you, you can't stay neutral. You either accept this cornerstone. Or you reject it. And if you were to reject it, it doesn't dismiss it as if you're the one who says something is true or not true on your own. To actually reject this cornerstone is to have it come back on you, to fall on you, to break you into pieces, and to crush you. He's talking about his righteous place as the judge. By what authority? Who gave you this authority? The Father gave me this authority. And I'll stand over all of the world in judgment. And remember, the one who's saying this is the one who went to the cross to take our judgment on himself so that we could be forgiven and set free. So this indictment, this warning is a massive invitation to what he's about to do. You should sit in this text and go like, I can't make it happen. I can't do it on my own. This, this lazy son is out. These ones who actually violently resist is out. What hope do we have? That's where you're supposed to be in this space. The question of his authority, Jesus is showing, man, because the Father owns everything and has given authority to the Son, that's how I'm doing what I'm doing. That's who I am. That's what I came to fulfill. That's actually why you should respond to me. Okay, so so insurrection. There's a ton there, but we're trying to look at the whole forest, not just individual trees. So we'll come to this last parable. This last piece of poetry that's meant to like get our hearts engaged where we feel something we wouldn't normally feel just with our heads because he's trying to expose the motives of these religious leaders. Hey, and this is where the punchline comes. So brace yourself a little bit. Chapter 22. And again, Jesus spoke. So he's layering this. Here's a parable. Let me tell you another parable. Hey, again, here's a parable. I'm saying the same thing. He's answering the same question about the authority that they asked. By, by what authority do you do this? Who, who are you? What, where do you get off doing what you're doing? In that space, he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Again, there's the son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they wouldn't come. Again, the servants are the prophets telling, telling what's happening, telling who God is, what the signs would be so they would know what the messiah was going to do so they could anticipate it the servants went and they called them into the wedding feast but they they wouldn't come again he sent other servants saying tell those who are invited see i've prepared my dinner my ox and my fattened calves they've been slaughtered everything is ready come to the wedding feast here again this god of judgment is inviting you to escape judgment so you can come into the feast What we are promised is a relationship with the living God in ways that are described with romance, like a wedding. He's the groom and we are the bride. And it says the end of time kind of caps with this beautiful marriage supper of the Lamb. You're welcome to this feast. And scholars will tell us in the ancient world, oftentimes what would happen, this is before email or Twitter or Instagram, they would send out an invitation days, weeks, months ahead of time telling people, on this day will be the wedding feast. So they could prepare. They could get ready. They would have accepted that invitation already. The same way the tenants accepted the terms of what it meant to be kind of working this land. The same way that the son accepted the call to go. In that same way, they would have accepted that. And now it's time for the dinner. It's time to celebrate the son. It's time to show your your allegiance to the son. To come and pay homage to the king's son. And that's the space now. Where they say no. Verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off. Again, this this indifference. This response of here's the king of the universe and you yawn. Here's the God who made everything and you don't have time for him. Here's the God who shows his authority and power over the world and you have something better to do. That that describes some of us in the room. There's this indifference we see in verse 5. So that they go off to the farm or to another business. While the rest of them, here's that insurrection again, they seize the servants and treat them shamefully and kill them. What a like dramatic response. So he's building now. It's just an invitation to the wedding, man. You should not be killing people who hand you wedding invitations. This is crazy unless it's a statement about authority. And it's you saying, I refuse to submit to the king. And to not go to his son's wedding is to say no to him. And that space now to say no to the God who made me kind of elicits or grows inside of us, boils up some active resistance. Because you can't stay sane in your head as a creature who's been made by the Creator and resist Him just passively. You have to have an aggressive answer. You have to actively resist Him. And that space then, way over the top, they treat the servant shamefully and actually kill them. So verse 7, so the king is angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Speaking of the judgment, you can't stay neutral. This rock that you reject will crush you in this space. Jesus is the judge whether you acknowledge him that way or not. They send troops to destroy the murderers and burn the city. Then he said to the servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited, they're not worthy. Pay attention to that word. But go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. Those who actively resist, those who say they won't submit to my authority, they're not worthy to come. So go and spread the word wide. This is the mission of God, to take the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth, to go and spread it wide. So the servants went into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So he says they're not worthy, but then he says they're gathering both good and bad. It's not their behavior that makes them worthy. It's their allegiance to Jesus. These aren't worthy because of their rejection of God's only way to actually come into a saving relationship with God. So those who have a past, those who've been squeaky clean, he welcomes an in. The wedding hall is now filled with guests, which is good news about how you think about your past, your pain, your, your suffering, your, your mistakes. To hear you're still invited but you have to deal with the son. You have to deal with the king. And here's the punchline of this whole thing. Verse 11. When the king came in to look at the guest, he, he's hearing the noise. He's smelling the food. He's, he's recognizing the party. He comes in and he sees a man there who doesn't have wedding clothes on. He's not wearing wedding garments. So he says to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding garments on? And he was speechless. Okay, This is kind of bizarre. Because even what happens next is, then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is references to hell. For many are called, but few are chosen. Parables are stories meant to prove a point to us poetically that you wouldn't normally get if you just walked through the story. You get inside this story as a wedding guest. You see the the indignant response to these people. How, how dare they do this to the king? Yes, they deserve judgment. Oh, the beautiful heart of the king to welcome everybody. Regardless of your past, you're all welcome to come into the feast. And the king scans the room and sees somebody who refuses to put on the wedding garments. He asks, How did you get in here without wedding garments? So but if he just said, Oh, I'm poor, I don't have wedding garments, or I didn't know we were supposed to wear those, That would be his answer, but he's speechless because he knows he comes in independent. Oh, I'll go, but I'm going to go on my terms. I'll go to the feast. I'll be there. I mean, I saw what happened to the guys who didn't go. So I'm going to play the game. I'm going to talk the talk. I'm going to do the stuff, but I'm going to do it on my terms. In the Scriptures, this idea of clothing often has identity to it. In our home-based passage that we live in in Colossians 3 as a church, you see this illustration of putting on the garments of what it means to have your identity in Jesus, to be, to be clothed with what he has done for us. So to say, I'm going to come to God on my own terms, is to express a kind of independence that marked our first parents in the garden, that you and I still carry the stain of, that is just kind of spoken over us all the time by our culture that you can do whatever you want and have God and and God's lucky to have you he's just lucky you're in the room and man if you give or serve that's even just a bonus and what this text does is says no no no. the one who would ask about the authority of the son must respond to the authority of the son not not indifferently not not with insurrection and not independently we don't come to God in saving ways on our own terms we must come on his terms. Historians would tell us in this space too, sometimes kings would would provide these wedding clothes. They understood what was going on in the culture, so they would provide the right attire. Right, Speaking of, of God even clothing us, giving us what we need if we would just accept it. He's not saying prove yourself, earn enough, be good enough, clean yourself up, wash all your clothes, and then you can come. He's saying, would you receive? The one who has authority over heaven and earth The one who flipped over the tables in the temple, the one who cursed the fig tree, the one who will die on the cross, who will be buried, who will raise, who shows his authority over death and hell on Easter morning, who then says to his disciples, go with this authority to all the world. That one invites all of us into the feast. But you have to come on his terms. You can't be indifferent. You can try to fight him, but he's the judge and the king. You'll be crushed by that and you can't come in some sort of pseudo-independence on your own terms in that space what you see is the same kind of judgment even though it's not as overt even though it's more socially acceptable he's actually in the room you might be in the room you might be around you might be in a small group you might be engaging in the life of our community you might be in the room and yet you're in the room on your own terms you hear the authority of the king and the authority he has over your life and You might nod your head, but inside your heart you're going, how dare he? Doesn't he know what I deserve? Doesn't he know what I've been through? Doesn't he know the kind of comfort that I need? Doesn't he know what my past kind of entitles me to? Where are there places where you actually come independent in this space? This is the punchline because the religious leaders refused the the terms that were laid out for them in the Old Testament. They verbally say so many wonderful things, but then their hearts are are distant, passively, actively, and and independent. So those are three really dangerous, in fact, deadly responses to the authority of Jesus. And instead, what he invites us to is simply to receive his invitation. To just just come. To come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, receive without money. Come, Come, eat without being able to purchase something. Come into my kingdom by faith in the Son that you understand to be the very God of the universe. In these chapters, what Jesus will be helping us do is come to terms with who he is. And as he does that, he's calling you to respond. I don't know what's happening inside your heart. I tried to invite you at the beginning. Hey, would you put yourself here? Would you engage these questions? Would you be honest about your own resistance so you can receive the beauty of what Jesus is offering to you? I would love now as we get ready to take communion for you to engage in that space. Would you just bring your heart honestly to God? And like most of these stories, there's probably this mixture in your heart. Where in some ways you say yes to Him, in other ways you say no to Him. The response there is repentance. And what you remember what you are celebrating in communion is that the very God who calls these things to you, who puts these demands on you, was willing to die in your place to meet those demands. Communion is a celebration that, yes, death was deserved from our treason and our rebellion. We agreed to the terms and then we rebelled and pushed away. And God, in his love and mercy, stood in our place, took the punishment for our sin so that we could be forgiven and set free. That's what you celebrate in communion. That I deserve death and I'm actually going to let Jesus' death pay the penalty for my sin. So it's a celebration. It's a feast. It's a feast. And if you're in the room and you're not ready yet to trust Christ, I want to invite you to soberly stay in your seat and pray. Just ask God to search your heart. Maybe use these categories of indifference or active resistance, insurrection, or or maybe like this overt independence. Where are you? What's keeping you from trusting the one who has proven his authority over and over and over again? And primarily on the cross as he died in your place and rose again from the dead. Who do you think you are? Jesus? Oh the God of the universe, who's willing to die in your place to make way for you to be forgiven and free. That's, that's who I am, and you have to deal with me. Would you bow your heads? I want to invite you to respond. If you're a follower of Christ, I want to invite you to do that through communion, to come and be nourished by the reminder of Christ's broken body and shed blood on your behalf. The way we take communion here is we come forward, tear a piece of the bread off, which is the broken body of Christ being represented for us. And then you dip it in the cup, which represents his blood that was shed for you. It's a declaration of what you've already believed to be your hope. And it is a submission to his authority as king, trusting his promises and what he taught. And again, if you're not a follower of Jesus in the room, I'm thankful that you're here, but would you hear this loving warning? And here there's kind of this lack of neutral space. You can't just kind of, deal with God on your own terms. You have to do something with him on his terms. Would you just pray and ask for God's help? Ask him to show himself to you. There's some prayers in the back of that bulletin that will give you some examples of what it would sound like to pray. I want to invite you to do that in this moment. Let me actually now then pray for us and take communion. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your authority. Thanks for the ways you taught us in this moment through story that grip our hearts, that expose us, that reveal what's inside of us. And thanks to everything that gets exposed and revealed, you died for. Everything that we've we've, uh, resisted and has been broken and has been violent and has been indifferent and has been independent, you died on the cross to set us free from. Thank you for the loving mercy that you expressed through your authority. Fill the room now with worship and gratitude as we think about and believe in what you've done. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Come when you're ready, then we'll sing.